Hey folks, it's Jeff Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you are listening to my podcast. It's called Successfully Funded. Here we go. Let's turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah! All right, crowdfunders. How is everybody doing out there? Well, we got a new week. We're kicking off here. It's Monday. And uh, man, I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah, how about that? So if you guys don't know what this podcast is all about, why are you listening? So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So this podcast, I I like to talk to project creators while they're in the middle um, or just finishing up a successful crowdfunding campaign. So that way we're talking about, you know, what they did to be successful, um, you know, tips and tools that they might have used. But also I I love to be able to get into the backstory. I love talking to entrepreneurs. I love talking to people who are, you know, inspired to go and create and make something and 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 have that vulnerability to put it out in the world and to see what happens. So today's episode, um, man, it was a great one. I talked to Sean and uh, Jack from um, Tuesday Night Games. Yeah, yeah, the, those guys. And uh, they, well, they were a fun, fun interview. Fun interview. Why did I just say Jack? I'm sorry, Alan. I just messed up. That's how much fun I guess I had with it. Just kidding. So I talked to Sean and Alan um, from Tuesday Night Games. This is what happens when you multitask, when you have another screen open and it's just sitting there and you're just kind of, you know, you're talking. I'm talking right now. I'm talking to my computer. And, uh, you know, you're just like, you're just looking. But no, Alan and Sean, sorry about that, guys. Don't, 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 don't um, troll me on Twitter, right? I made a mistake. I made a mistake. So great guys, great conversation, tons of energy, um, tons of insight into uh, into their games. They've got um, they just got finished finished on doing an expansion pack for Two Rooms and a Boom, which is a, sounds like a pretty interesting game. It's something that I'm thinking about maybe possibly picking up for me and my friends to to play when we get together. Uh, so very intriguing. Great conversation is going to be coming up. So, um, but. Like I said, you're going to have to hold on a little bit. You got to let me rant a little bit. You got to let me get my therapy out, right? This is now my time, which is something that I'm working on, right? Finding my time. Currently right now, what I'm attempting to try to do is I'm trying to find time to get back into yoga. I haven't been there in probably a month. That's right. So you guys can judge me about that now too. I haven't been able to get to yoga. I just can't, time. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not carving out that personal time for me, right? That's important to do. Working on it though. I'm working on it. So yesterday I had a pretty interesting day. Um, took the kids to Jungle Java, which if you don't know what that is, it's basically like a big play structure for the kids to to run around in. And we had a play date with some of Addie's old preschool friends. So people we haven't seen in six months, maybe seven months, something like that. So sitting there, and mind you, this Jungle Java on this Sunday was jam-packed. There was people everywhere. Really, really great um, people-watching abilities were going on yesterday. I was uh, deep-diving into that. Um, but as the day was kind of winding down, we're, you know, we're getting close to dinner. Uh, one of Addie's friends, his name is Jackson, um, just runs up, just screaming and crying and holding his face. And it's like, what the, well, what is this, you know? So it turns out that they were playing some sort of game of dodgeball. We're talking about six-year-olds here, people. So my son's there and a couple other uh, of, of his old friends. And so apparently this kid got annoyed that this dodgeball was going on, went up to his mom, and his mom told this bigger kid, he was probably, according to my son, about maybe 10 or 11, to punch Jackson in the face. That's how he should fix the problem. So this kid rolls over and cold cocks. Jackson, right in the eye. Huge black eye. My son is terror. I mean, he's just wide-eyed. Like, he can't believe this happened. He runs up to me, and he's just like, you know, he's just sitting there. You know, so you're like, what's up? What's the matter? Jackson B. is freaking out. So, you know, the mom of Jackson goes to try to find the other mom because, you know, this it's going to go down. This is going to be a showdown here, people. I don't – that's just – that's not good behavior. I, everybody's part, right? And uh, so – yeah, we can't find the parents. So, man, talk about controversy. That is not what you do for parenting. Not that I know a lot, but I know you don't do that. I know I'm not ever going to tell my son, hey, if that kid's bothering you, you need to roll up and just cold cock him right in the face. <laughs> so that happened. Yeah. 
I, I don't know how we're supposed to survive in this world if you have people like that, right? Like, it, you see how we get into ridiculous scenarios if that's the mindset of somebody else, right? Right? Isn't that how it gets to it? So, the other thing that happened yesterday is a good buddy of mine, and this one, this one's kind of affecting me a little bit. It's kind of, I don't know, making me feel uh, more joyful about today. So, my best friend growing up, man, I hung out with this guy every single day. We lived pretty close to each other. He was my lead guitar player in the band Head Gaskets. Shout out to the Head Gaskets there. Um, but he's been real sick over the last couple of years. And I don't know, I got some messages yesterday during Facebook that he was scheduled to get a liver transplant um, last night at seven o'clock. So I'm currently, as I'm taping this, I don't know what's going on. But man, he's just been right in the front of my front of my thoughts here of just how short it is for life. I mean, this is a 37-year-old guy, right? He's my age, my best friend. And to know that just in a blink of an eye, he's got two kids, a wife that you know, just so quickly he can be, you know, just really knocked down, you know, and um, I don't know, it's just really put a spotlight on standing back and just being uh, more grateful, you know, um, you know, being appreciative of the things and, and really thinking about health, hence why I'm like, man, I got to get, I got to find that time again to get back to yoga. I, I enjoyed going, I, it felt good. But for some reason, it's always the first thing to go when I get super busy. And that's the, that's the thing I've got to find a way to fix. That's the thing that bothers me. It's like, why does that have to go? Why doesn't, you know, TV go or, I don't know, just other things? It's always that, you know, <laughs> that hard thing, that health thing. So, so Kurtman, um, I don't know if you're a listener. I think you might have actually listened. You've, you've commented a few times. But, man, I'm thinking about you, buddy. I hope everything's good today. I'm looking forward to hearing an update. Um, but yeah, stressful, stressful stuff, but it's definitely top of mind right now um, for me and my family. It's just, you know, and on top of that too, like my wife, um, you know, my wife had a, a, a friend of hers. Um, she died just right after giving, uh, giving birth. I mean, just, you know, just starting as you're getting older, I mean, these things just start to pop up. You start to put that sort of spotlight on, on life, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's, that's top of mind right now. Um, but, but I, I started my new task. Um, so I've, I've, I've gone through a couple of these. I don't know if you guys have ever used them or not. It's called, uh, um, it's self, it's called a, a self journal. And one of the things I've never really been that good at is, is, is keeping a journal or, um, just kind of writing my thoughts out a little bit more. Um, I don't, I don't do that very often. When I do, I always feel better. But again, this is another thing that kind of seems like always goes for me. I forget about it or I stop doing it. And I purchased another self-journal. It just came in. I really like the way these journals are laid out just because it's laid out in like um, in 13-week steps or 13-week to get to a goal. So very goal-focused. So so I spent this morning just kind of filling that out and, and just kind of I'm really going to try to commit to taking that time um, when I, you know, so I got up today at 5.30, you know, to get some, some early work done. And um, once the kids kind of got up and I get them breakfast and lunches all made and all that stuff, just to sit and focus and write in this. And, you know, one of the things too they have in there is I really love the fact that they have these sort of, um, uh, a section to write like what you're grateful for. So kind of thinking about my buddy Kirk and that sort of stuff going on is, is just writing those out and just, you know, you know, actually taking a moment to feel grateful that I feel healthy, right? I'm not snotty. Um, my wife is homesick today. My son is coughing, but that's, I mean, as, if you're a regular listener, you know, that's always going on here. Um, but I'm also just kind of feeling grateful that I actually also got a pretty good night's sleep last night. Yeah. I went to bed early, got up early. You know, it's amazing how that makes you feel better. But, um, so another quick thing, I'm going to get off that a little bit. So check out the self journal. Um, if you are, if you're a journaler or you're trying to get into it, I really like the way it's laid out and I'll probably have it in my five things, uh, I found interesting this week, uh, that goes out on Friday. So if you sign up, if you're a part of my signups, you'll, you'll get that. But, um, the other thing that's happened is I know there's a lot, I actually haven't talked in a while. So, uh, I wanted to, I'm going to, I'm going to rant a little bit here before I interview, but we just created a scout book. That's right. Woodshed did. It's not for sale yet. We're, we're still building all that stuff, but it came in on Friday, uh, no, it came in on Wednesday last week. And so I got one in my hand here and I think it came out really, really good. I'm going to have some photos of it later, but, um, 
the title of the book is uh, You Are Your Own Brand, and it's 32 Principles for Online Success from the Team with More Successfully Funded Projects on Kickstarter than Anyone Else. Yeah, that's us. Just FYI, that's us. So, um, what, you know, what this book's for, it's, it's for that entrepreneur um, who's not just getting into crowdfunding, but really thinking about um, social media, brand awareness, and, and trying to be social. I'm going to read um, uh, a couple excerpts. I'm going to read a couple parts from it. I couldn't say the word, sorry. Um, so number one, social media is a misnomer because the way people use it isn't particularly social. The way people use it isn't about relationships. So we see that all the time. People just broadcast, keep sending stuff out, but they're not actually jumping into conversations. So two, posting selfies, sharing political news, sharing cat pictures and inspirational quotes, posting pictures of your food adventures and your outdoor adventures, sharing links to music and books, these things aren't about relationships. They're about identity construction. And if you understand this, the misnomer is an opportunity because the landscape of social media is full of people frantically constructing their identities at each other, but who wish instead they were connecting with people, who wish instead they were having relationships. So that's just a little section of the book. Um, we've got a whole bunch of, of sayings like that, uh, or thoughts. And I'm, I'm encouraging you guys, keep your eye out on it. If you're part of our signups or you're part of the podcast, I'm going to be talking a lot about it. I'll be reading some stuff from it because I really think it came out awesome. Price point is going to be under 10 bucks. We, we don't know all the details yet, but it's going to be, I think, really, really helpful for people to, uh, to, to pick up. And, and also it comes with a section to keep your notes. So if, again, hey, don't buy the self-journal. Maybe you got to buy what I'm talking about, our product. Huh, I'm pitching too many things here. So, all right. So, got a big week. Got a, um, I should have another episode on Thursday. We're back in the swing of things. Uh, but let's go ahead and kick to my conversation with Alan and Sean from Tuesday Night Games. And uh, hold on to your horses because this interview is a wild one. It's like a bucking horse. I feel like I had to, you know, Alan's jumping in, Sean's jumping in. I'm, I'm wrangling people. Ooh, a lot coming at you. It's going to be exciting. It's a big hitting interview. So, if you're into board games or, real, real, uh, or RPG games, um, I think this interview is going to be really, really helpful for you. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into my conversation. All right, Sean and Alan, welcome to the podcast. Woohoo! Hey. Thanks. Right. Good to be here. All right. So maybe we should take a second uh, so that people can put a name to a voice. So, Sean, maybe you can say hi first. Let's hear Sean's voice. Hey, how's it going? I'm Sean McCoy. Hey, there's Sean. Alan, how about you now? Yeah, this is Alan Girding. I'm from Cleveland. Woo! Cleveland, that's a hot spot. That's not far away. I could get there within, like, the next couple hours. I'm in, I'm in Detroit right now. Yeah, we could hang out. We nice. Hey, tonight. we're both the mistakes by the lake. We compete yeah. for that title, I hear. Both gems of America, but yeah, yeah, born and raised here. Love it. Cool, cool, cool. Well, you guys just finished up a very successful Kickstarter campaign. Uh, I, why don't you guys, well, one of you, whoever wants to take the lead here, tell the listeners a little bit what, uh, what you just finished up uh, running a Kickstarter for. Go for it, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> so we just finished up a Kickstarter for um, the first expansion pack for our party game, Two Rooms in a Boom. Uh, this is called Necro Boomicon, and it's a Cthulhu Lovecraft themed ten card uh, expansion for Two Rooms and a Boom. So, for the people who don't know what Two Rooms and a Boom is, maybe you can uh, can talk a little bit about that. It's a party game that's always a blast. It plays six to thirty players in just fifteen minutes, sometimes even less. Imagine this: you've got thirty players, you divide fifteen into two different rooms or two different play areas. Everyone gets dealt a random card. Some of the cards are red, some of the cards are blue, indicating what team you're on. There's timed rounds, a three-minute round, a two-minute round, and a one-minute round. That way you know the game doesn't last forever. At the end of every round, there's a hostage exchange between the rooms. This shuffles up the rooms, switching the, I guess, the combination of teams in each room. At the end of the game, at the end of the last round, everyone reveals their team card. So, why is this important? Because one of the red team members is the bomber, and one of the blue team members is the president. If they're in the same room at the end of the game, the president has blown up, and red team wins, but if they're in separate rooms, then the blue team wins, because president lives! 
And that's yeah. two rooms and a boom. So most of the game, you just walk around talking to people. You can show them your card if you want to. You can show them just part of your card. So it plays like a cooperative game because basically all you're doing the entire time is walking around, talking to people, finding out if they're on your team. If you find out that they are, you try to figure out what the hell is going on. It's pretty nice. Wow. I think you've given that speech before. Never. That was my first time. <laughs> that was the first time? Man. First time ever. Right out of the gate with a home run. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Well, that's cool. So so, so the, what you just finished up uh, crowdfunding for was an expansion pack. So I guess walk us through a little bit on how the expansion packs work inside of this game. Highly deadly. We basically say that Necroboomicon is two rooms and a boom on hard mode because it introduces a whole bunch of characters that make the game even more intense than original because there's a lot of characters in this small expansion pack that can instantly end the game. If you recall, I said there's a three-minute round, two-minute round, one-minute round, but imagine a card that says if someone shares their card with you, you automatically win. Boom. And therefore, it kind of evokes that feeling of HP Lovecraftian horror where you're really petrified to do anything, but you have to do something in order to win the game. But you're really nervous, too. <laughs> well, interesting, interesting. So let's, let's go back a little bit. So did you guys actually crowdfund the original um, version of this game? Or have you guys just uh, done the expansion packs through crowdfunding? Uh, we, did the, we do all of our games uh, on Kickstarter. So we crowdfund everything we do. Okay. So, you know, what's, what's kind of a general difference between maybe crowdfunding... Uh, the original game compared to the expansion packs. I mean, it seems like with the expansion packs, you've kind of got an audience started there. But what, you know, what are there any major differences that you guys find? I think uh, one of the biggest things uh, has to do with like the logistics. Uh, from my end, that's generally what I have to deal with in the company. Um, so we went from you know kickstarting a twenty-five dollar game to a five dollar expansion pack. Um, which introduced a bunch of new hurdles for shipping, um, but also, you know, you're raising money five times as slow if your product is five times cheaper. So making sure that we got that critical mass was huge. Um, what else it was sort of a test balloon for was how much of our audience had we retained from our first Kickstarter. So, you know, we kickstarted our first game, Terms in a Boom, and uh, we even did another game called World Championship Russian Roulette in between then and now. And we wanted to see how many of those people would come back um, and sort of support this business model because our expansion pack was, you know, super cheap, five bucks, just a buck or two shipping. Um, but we also wanted to draw in new players. Um, so we gave a really good combined shipping deal uh, if you wanted the first game and the expansion pack. Um, but, yeah, I think the hardest difference for us um, from a logistics standpoint is you're inherently selling something that – you only want to buy if you already have the game. Right. And so it was a right, huge right. test of who our previous audience was and how many of them still stuck around and were waiting for new content. Where did you guys end up meeting? Vegas, baby. We met at Vegas. Sean, take it away. <laughs> we, uh, we were at this convention in Vegas called the Gamma Trade Show, uh, which is a convention for board game retailers and manufacturers to sort of get together and hobnob. And uh, at the time, I was working for a company called Arcane Wonders, and we were working on our flagship game, Mage Wars, um, which Alan was a uh, like a lead playtester for. We always sent in super detailed notes, and um, we ended up giving this talk. And to prepare for the talk, we went through all of our photos of playtesters, and we were thinking, like, okay, who would represent the company well? Who would put a good face on it? And we saw this, you know, handsome guy smiling, holding up a a copy of the game, and so we put that in the speech, and when it came up sort of in the slideshow, we heard this like, hey, sort of in the background of the crowd, and after the show was over, uh, Alan came up, and he was like, that was me on the big screen, and it was crazy, and we had never sort of met before. Well, my boss went to Vegas all the time for work, and I had never been, and Alan had been before, so Alan was like, well, do you want to roll with us tonight? Well, the cool thing about going to Vegas with Alan is that he, one of his good friends, is a magician. Michael Mirth the Magnificent. <laughs> and uh, Michael Mirth had this idea. Um, he was like, hey, there's this bar off the strip where retired magicians sort of get together and tell old war stories. Do you guys want to go? Uh, which was like a total no-brainer for us. Uh, so we went to this like CD bar where like these old guys got together and like practiced their tricks or told like old vaudevillian jokes. Um, young kids who were like sort of st- – 
showing off their chops and trying to learn from guys who were, you know, weren't in the game anymore were there. And we just sat there and like told jokes and I got hammered and uh, we just sort of hung out all night and sparked up this sort of friendship. That's, that's cool. Yeah, from there, I invited Sean to CrystalCon, which was my engagement party because I was getting married to my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Crystal. He came over, and we sat down and came up with two rooms and a boom. It was great. That's sweet. So so where was the kind of the, the, the moment where you guys understood and realized that the game had something to it, you know, that you had some meat and potatoes behind it. You, you, you realize that you should spend some more time on it. You know, where, where was that in the whole process? Protospiel in Michigan. One of the coolest things about Sean coming to visit me for an entire week was that after CrystalCon, I had to go to this convention in Michigan where you show a whole bunch of people your prototypes of games and publishers go there too, basically hunting, headhunting for what games they'll want. So we took two rooms and a boom, having made it just the night before. We played it, everyone loved it, and the craziest thing happened. We got offers on it right there and then, which was, that's not typical at all. So right there we realized, oh, we have something here. This game has legs. So so what does like an offer look like? I mean, I guess I've never, I haven't interviewed anybody that's had that sort of story. And it sounds like it's pretty rare. What, what does like an offer even mean in, in, in your industry? Uh, like a publisher would say, hey, we want to publish this game. Uh, we'd want to license it from you. And they would pay us a royalty somewhere between 3 and 5% of uh, you know gross sales on the game. And we'd work out details about you know how we get the rights back and targets they have to set and what kind of creative control we would maintain going forward. Um, and so you Which know, that's not how, like, usually most the case. Usually that's yeah, further that's down the pipeline. Right. Normally they just say, hey, we're interested in the game. Please send me your rules is normally step one. And then they'll say, okay, send me your components. And you establish this line of communication. And eventually when they play it, then they offer the percentage. And usually every company has their standard offer. So they give you your standard offer, standard contract. You sign there if you want to or not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. Now, did you guys take any offers or did you guys want to keep this still in, you know, I guess to the vest, keep it for yourself? This is cool. We never actually talked about this before, Sean. Should we give away the untold story of Two Rooms and a Boom without naming names or specifics? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so we got one offer right off the bat and we held it close to our chest. We weren't sure. But also, we had loyalty to some other individuals, and sure enough, they had an offer as well. And something really bizarre happened is there was a bidding war that basically happened where we had to tell one publisher, we're sorry, well, this other publisher is offering us that much. Hmm. And they said, well, then I'll offer you this much. So we contacted the other publisher and said, sorry, we're not going to take your offer because this other publisher is making offering this much. And they match it and raise. It was almost like this game of Texas Hold'em. Hmm. And the weird, dumb thing that Sean and I did is we eventually said, screw it. We're doing it on our own. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. So it seems like for both of you, uh, board games have been in your life for a while. So let's, let's go back even further here. So maybe we'll start with you, Sean. Like, you know, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Garland, Texas, a small suburb of Dallas. If you've ever seen King of the Hill, uh, they live in Arlen, yeah. Texas, and it's based on Garland. Yeah. Oh, you know, oh, what's really? funny about that is that the animator, the creator, who also created Beavis and Butthead, actually came, went to my high school. So like, that's really weird that we're connected in that way too, Sean. <laughs> That is crazy. It's true. And now he lives in Austin, where a friend of mine served him coffee a couple years ago. Uh, yeah. Anyway, wow. sorry. Yeah, we could go back and forth on Mike Judge forever. Yeah, so so where did uh, – I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like board games have been a, a big part of your life. But where did those kind of come in? Where did you kind of first start diving into games and, 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 and enjoying them? Uh, for me, it was all through my cousin Ryan, uh, who's actually who got me in. Shout out! <laughs> who got me into Mage Wars? Uh, he was three years older than me when I was a little kid. Um, we would play chess and Risk and Stratego, um, and uh, through sort of a friend of a friend, the guy who ended up eventually making Mage Wars, Brian Pope, 
Uh, he had his own role-playing game called Legendary Heroes, and we played that when I was a kid, too. Um, but board games were always this, like, signal that you were, like, intelligent um, and, you know, a good problem solver to me because my cousin was just so smart. And so I was always really wrapped up in them. Um, eventually, I sort of drifted away from it after playing, you know, like, Magic the Gathering and D&D and getting into some indie role-playing games in college to focus on sort of trying to get a film career off the ground. Uh, but when that didn't work, um, I came back to Majors because they needed a graphic designer. And I had been working on that sort of in my spare time. And I put together some prototype pieces for them. And they said, well, why don't you come and do this for us full-time? And that's when I sort of re-got back into board games and seeing that there's this whole world um, that I hadn't really known about that Alan, you know, basically showed me about, you know, Werewolf and Resistance and all these sort of games that had been huge hits while I wasn't paying attention and sort of fell back in love with the hobby. Hmm. And how about yourself? Like, where, where did you grow up? For I grew up in the Cleveland area, and my story is a little bit opposite of Sean because where I came from, board games wasn't a measure of intelligence. It was nothing to brag. It was a sign you had no other friends. So for me, I played a whole bunch of games with my nerdy friends when I was a kid and would fade in and fade out. The real excitement started with the crazy labyrinth from Ravensburger, the German company. They made Scotland Yard and a whole bunch of other games. And then when HeroQuest came out in 1989, oh man, that was a whole nother bag of potato chips. I was in as geeky can get. (laughs) Then, you know, school comes along, adolescence, you know, you have some girlfriends here and there, faded out. But fast forward to college and started getting together with friends and started having a a Tuesday gathering and we would play games every Tuesday. And I've been doing that for over a decade now. So that's why we also named our company Tuesday Night Games, because I've been playing games every Tuesday for a long time. So so uh, now are either of you guys, uh, you guys got uh, significant others, you got lady friends, uh, you guys married? Tell me, you guys have that going on for you? Yeah, Crystal's my wife, and right. I proposed to her using a board game known as Ascension. It was a company, it's a game made by Stoneblade Games, which used to be called Gary Games, and that was a game that we would play all the time, and I actually contacted them and said, hey, my girlfriend and I play this game all the time, I'd love to propose to her, can I use your game to do it? And they were all excited about it, so we got ourselves made into the game, and there was a I love you, will you marry me card that was made, and so she got to draw it, and it's actually on YouTube. You can check it out. If you just Google an Ascension proposal, you'll see me proposing to my wife. So, so it sounds like she's fairly supportive on you uh, on the Tuesday nights there. She, she's not telling you, no, hey, what, she what hates it. It's ridiculous. No, she is, she's very, <laughs> very supportive. She's not as much of a gamer as I am. She likes the games that I make, and she likes the games she likes. But for me, I'm much more easy when it comes to liking games. That's why I should never be a game reviewer, because my reviews are almost always, I don't know, I kind of liked it. <laughs> so so uh, how about you sean i mean is you know right now i mean is, is gaming just a everyday you know outside of just work and making games like are you constantly playing them and 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 you know is it a big part of your uh of your makeup right now i don't get to play games as much as i'd like i play D once a week um and then i try to play board games with my niece and nephew uh, my girlfriend's niece and nephew um, as much as we can, so I'm always sort of looking for games that they'll play. Um, and then I get board games to the table once every few weeks, not nearly as often as Alan does. Um, but yeah, most of my time, um, if it's not spent doing graphic design, which I do for you know five to fifteen hours a week, it's uh, spent on the company, uh, just working on selling games, getting them shipped, getting them manufactured. Um, and then in my spare time, yeah, working on designing games too. So, so I think you guys are probably to me sounds like absolute experts in, in where games are going and there's been a huge research I don't want to say a resurgence but just this huge boom going on in Kickstarter right now where do you guys see you know board games and Kickstarter going in the next couple of years here I think it will always be viable I think the only difference will be is you're going to see 
the strong coming out and the weak dying out. Just think of it as an online online Amazon store at this point. And I hate saying that because Kickstarter is not a store, but it why I say that is you're going to have an amazing selection of games on Kickstarter at any moment. And it's basically up to the consumer to suss out what seems good and what seems bad. So I think there's going to be a natural evolution. But when Kickstarter first came out, a lot of people said, this is a bubble. This is a dream. It it can't support Mm -hmm. itself. It's going to crumble. I don't think so. I think Kickstarter's here to stay for years to come. Well, why why do you think that the board game community is is having such success in Kickstarter? Because there are... um, I think certain categories that have kind of died out and I would be an example of it. I've, I've ran over 300 campaigns in the, in the music and arts uh, uh, on Kickstarter and even Indiegogo and tilt and pledge music. And I've actually seen that the arts have kind of struggled a little bit with it, but board games seems to be doing the opposite. So what do you think might be going on in maybe in the community sense? Um, because uh, again, and I'll, I'll just highlight some of them. I've interviewed a, quite a few and they're just, there's such an openness to conversations like this, doing the podcast and accepting social media. Do you think that has something to do with it? Just a mindset behind the board game community or I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just intrigued on it. I think um, community is the right word for it. It's that the, the, the whole, whole community has really shifted to accept as an integral part of the process, right? Mm-hmm. Where with music, um, you have like people who are still clinging to like you know traditional retail venues. Then like the majority of the people seem to have moved to like Amazon or not Amazon like iTunes. Um, but then you have like the Bandcamp, Spotify movement, and even from there you have like my friend uh, Kent Stump who has a band called Woe Fat. They're really into like the vinyl scene, right? right. So <laughs> Whoa, music fat. is a much much larger industry. <laughs> uh, they're a much much larger industry, right? But they're also uh, more segmented, like the market channels are. Where uh, board games are much smaller, but you basically have games you buy at Target, games you buy at Amazon, games you buy at your local retailer, and games you get off of Kickstarter. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think Kickstarter has just become a much more integral part of that process. Um, the other thing is, uh, I think it's part of that. In culture. terms of the physical reward. Oh, go on, Sean. Physical reward. I, I I thought we were going the same way, but you're going different. Physical reward. Go. In in terms in terms of like what you get, right? Like at the end of the day, you get a board game, which I think makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. More so than like, you know, I put in twenty bucks and I got a DVD out of it, and you got you know two point one million dollars to make your movie. There's something very tactile about it that makes sure. sense to board gamers, I think. Um, but also, there's this idea that like anyone could do it, which you sort of don't have with like bands in a certain sense. Like, yeah, I could learn to go play music, but we have this stigma about like, well, if you're not already famous, why would I care? Whereas like some, you know, nobody guy could make a board game and it could become a huge hit on Kickstarter. Um, because I think our community is a lot more like looking for that kind of sure, thing. Sure. What were you going to say, Alan? Oh, Alan's got to hit his mic. Or just- My mic was muted. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, I totally agree with everything you say, Sean. I think it's also a cultural thing where if you're into music, you can go up to anyone and say, do you like music? And they'll say, what are you, an idiot? Of course I like music. I'm a human being. There's so many different types of music. People are now just discovering that about games. It's just like movies and music in that there is a game out there for you. So there's a little bit of credibility there in we're kind of in the exploration phase where there's all these new types of video, uh, sorry, video games, new types of board games out there that people didn't even realize existed. And that's totally true. There is a game out there for everyone. Saying you don't like board games is just like saying you don't like movies, you don't like music. It's very limiting if you were to say that. And and do you think that Kickstarter is, you know, as we're seeing this sort of, explosion or, or, or what we're describing here, this, this sort of store-esque vibe to it, do you think that still is a great opportunity for like a first-time um, game designer to, to go to the platform? Or do you see the platform kind of, you know, you've got to be established to get to it? Because I, I think you're seeing that maybe in the tech side of it. Like you've got to, you know, you ha- you've had to have produced something in the past to maybe get the big numbers um, that we're seeing. So what do you guys think about that? 
think there is room for almost anyone to put a game up on Kickstarter, but you do have to do your homework. You can't be lazy about it. And that's the great thing about Kickstarter versus the old way of doing something where you have to find perhaps a publisher or investors if you're going to do something creative. Because if you have a good idea and you're able to communicate that good idea, then backers will see that idea and will want that in front of them. So they will back that idea. If you can't fund on Kickstarter, that may be a good sign that your idea either needs to be reworked or you need to get another idea. Yeah, I agree to that a lot of times. I, I think people look at Kickstarter, not, not enough in viability. If you can't do it here, why would somebody buy it at Walmart or Amazon or whatever it might be? Um, but but yeah. yeah. So as you guys are kind of exploring this sort of this game, particularly when you guys were first making it, was there any sort of major pivot points that you guys had to over, overcome or any major blockages where you just, I don't know, you just... <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Apparently that answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, it was all smooth sailing. Oh, yeah. um, not a single no, problem. Our biggest... Not one at all. It was like divine intervention. <laughs> Our biggest problem um, was on our first campaign, Two Rooms and a Boom, uh, we upgraded. We had a stretch goal where we would upgrade the quality of our cards from regular cardstock to this high-quality, waterproof, bendable, flexible plastic. Okay. Um, and our manufacturer said they could do it, and they'd send us samples, and we liked the samples. Um, and two things happened. One, uh, it took forever for me to get the art done. Uh, we decided I would do all the art myself to sort of save money and like lower our risk. So we were way over schedule with the art, uh, which really sucked. And then on top of that, once we got that done, we were like, okay, you know, let's move forward. Let's go quick. Um, we got our first round of proofs back from the manufacturer and the plastic cards, no joke, were translucent. You could see through them if light was shining on them. Uh, doesn't work well in a hand- whole game. So if I can tell what team you're on from <laughs> yeah. across the room, yeah. it doesn't really work. Yeah. A little bit of an issue. Yeah. And it's weird because the samples we got were like poker cards. So it was like there's no game in the world where being able to tell what the other player has is appropriate or acceptable. So we, you know, we talked to them and uh, – and it just became clear that this was – they had let us know that this would be an experimental product, that they hadn't done it before. Um, but we just kept hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. The the cards were showing scratches. They weren't matching in color. We had to change the card backs from white to black. Uh, and eventually I flew to China and met with them. We went over our options and uh, you know sort of worked on our relationship and, and made like a new commitment to get this right. But we were, you know, at this point – uh, maybe like eight months late already okay. uh, on delivering. We came back, you know, the CEO of the manufacturer got involved um, and they pounded it out and they got it done. And the game came out about a year after we said it would. Um, but, to, you know, great acclaim and people loved it. We sold out in like four or five months. Um, and that, you know, it's his own story afterwards. But from the Kickstarter perspective, this, I think, is a very old crowdfunding story, which is that you can get in over your head with the stretch goals. Um, we had been looking at plastic cards for a long time, so we don't think that's really what happened. Um, was like we just got in over our head with just unlocking so many things. But um, we unlocked, I don't know, like a dozen stretch goals on our first campaign, and we really, you know, tiered them out and uh, really wanted to make it special. Um, and in a way, it was kind of overwhelming. There was just a lot to account for. It wasn't like we had T-shirts and mugs and all this other stuff, um, but that one component, everything else flew by perfectly, but that one component was just so hard to get um, that it really made it clear to us that if that during Kickstarters, we don't experiment with materials oh. or components that hadn't been messed that that we couldn't like prove beyond a shadow of a doubt you know oh this company's basically done this before um the time to experiment with that would be before the kickstarter right right and and, and you know i noticed too i mean you have what was the other game you have the the world champion russian roulette is that correct i think yet yes congratulations you've made it to the world I, championship <laughs> unfortunately it's in russian roulette <laughs> 
So, you know, where where did where did that game come from in this whole process too? Is that you know is it something that you guys are, are constantly working on, or did you source that game, or how, how did that game come to come to come to the table? Anthony Birch. Anthony Birch. All right, cool. So, so cool. And what, what does <laughs> usually that mean? when I do that, I'm assuming Sean's going to pick up and start throwing. <laughs> so that's like Anthony Birch uh, was the head writer of uh, Borderlands Two. Um, and he had a really popular show called Hey Ash, Hey Ash, What You Playing on uh, YouTube. Uh, he still does, I think, which is just you know about video games. Yeah, it's a little he still has comedy new show. Um, They're good. They're good. New episodes. And uh, after a little bit, he worked for uh, Freddie Wong, uh, and now I think he's working for Riot Games, the people who make League of Legends. Um, so he was a known quantity in the video game world. In the gaming world, um, we were connected through friends of friends, uh, the guys who run a show called Board with Life, um, which is a little web series that's kind of like the league, but about board games. Okay. Um, and they're local to Dallas, and Alan was big fans of theirs, and we met at a convention here in Dallas. Um, and eventually they reached out and said, hey, our friend Anthony is working on this game. You know, we were wondering if you guys could help him out. And, um we sort of went back and forth with him about some advice, uh, you know, about options he had or people he could take it to. Uh, and eventually we ended up signing him. And I think it was a really good fit for our company. Um, Alan, you know, worked on developing the game and getting the uh, mechanics where they needed to go. I focused on, you know, getting the artist and the graphic designer and that kind of stuff. Um, and while on Kickstarter it wasn't as big a hit as Two Rooms and a Boom was, um, I'm really proud of the work we did. We, it was a much more organized. It was very clear that we had learned from a lot of our mistakes mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, we lined up our manufacturers ahead of time. We didn't use any components we knew we couldn't handle. We set our timelines very realistically. We outsourced, you know, things that took us a long time to do, uh, the first time around. Um, but there's no so roses really without them. thorns. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, so I feel really good about the work we did on that. That's cool. So now, do you guys kind of describe Tuesday Night Games? Are you a publisher to, to some degree? Is that what you guys really the business is? Yeah, yeah, publishers. Think of it as producers of a movie because you have the directors of a movie, you have the screenplay writer, but the producers are the ones who make the movie happen financially and get everything organized outside of everything it takes to make the movie itself. So in the example of World Championship Russian Roulette, we didn't design the game. We developed the game. So that would be the equivalent of buying the script from Anthony Birch. And then we were the directors and the producers. So yeah, game publishing. So if someone came to us with an amazing idea for a tabletop game, we would go ahead and offer them a contract. But we also have lots of games of our own. I'm really excited to make Sean's game Duel. So we have many games in the pipeline. But yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's our name, Tuesday Night Games, that you'll see at the bottom of the box, just like Hasbro, Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers, etc. So so in, 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 in regards to Tuesday Night Games, where do you guys see the next five years going? That's a great question. I think... Um me working full time is definitely in the picture um, and making this like our number one priority. Alan is a uh, psychology professor um, <laughs> in his secret identity, alter ego life. Um, the biggest things I think we want to accomplish first off, you know, our first couple of games are our party games. They're very light. Um, and so we want to expand on that and really develop ourselves as being, you know, um, the experts at party games, I guess you could say. Uh, we just really want slowly all of diversifying and go on. I'm so sorry, Sean. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I really liked you were going with this slowly diversifying. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. Go we, for it. <laughs> we wanted to slowly diversify uh, our lineup, mm-hmm. right? Um, after you establish yourself as having like a niche that uh, you know your players can expect to do well, and having titles that sell continuously. Um, because this is a very, uh, what do they call it, forward, front-first market, um, where front people are, it's like market. all about the cult of the new. Yeah. Frontline market, that's right. People always want the new game, the new game, the new game. Um, but from us, for a risk perspective, it's better to establish, <laughs> obviously everyone would say this, but you want games that are going to be evergreen, that are going to be classics, that are going to sell year after year after year. 
Um, but once you have that, once you have some games that you know give you some sort of stability, you can branch out and say, okay, we're going to try our hands at uh, you know a card game or a role playing game or a, you know um, like a war game or a miniatures game or you know these other kinds of games, these other genres. Um, once we think we can sort of handle those in an excellent way, right. and, and is it? I guess I'm equating this. I come from the music business. I'm equating it to having like a roster of artists that all have some crossover to some degree, or do you guys invi- or, or do you want to have that in board games, or do you want to have you know this style of game, like you know four or five different style of games um, under your umbrella? We want games that don't suck. But besides that being the common thread that connects all of our games, I would love it if in our company, when someone heard a game or played one of our games, could say, wow, this feels like a Tuesday night game. That doesn't mean that they're all party games. Like Sean said, we want to diversify that. But have the common thread. For instance, I really hate boredom. So I don't think we'll ever make a game where when it's not your turn to play, you're bored or just waiting or have nothing to do. So I'm a strong believer that the game has to be engaging enough that you're always participating no matter what. And, you know, that may even include that you're thinking your turn very thoroughly, and by the time it's your turn, you know, you're ready to go. But it's... It's an exciting thing. My philosophy, and I think Sean shares this philosophy, and I think this extends into the philosophy of Tuesday night games, is realistically, all the game is there to do is to facilitate a memorable experience with your friends. So the game should have legs enough that it stands on its own, but realistically, it should just make it so that when everyone leaves, they're still remembering the night they had which I think is lost in a lot of games where once the game's done, you're thinking, all right, what's the next thing instead of talking about it? So when we're playtesting games, one of the things that we really look for is how much are the people talking about it when they finished playing the game? That's good. That's, uh, yeah, that seems, that seems awesome. I mean, like a great mindset to be in uh, when you're thinking about a game. So, so in terms of just two rooms and a boom, maybe we'll focus back a little bit on that where do you see that game going? Is is more expansion packs or or another series, another version of it? Where where do you see that going? Yeah, I think uh, for us, for two rooms and a boom, um, it has a large player count, right? So it's six to thirty players. So people play it at school, youth groups, um, any sort of large party situation. And our first expansion pack really aimed to make the game really, really great at low player counts, like six to 10 players. Um, because the base game, you know, we think really shines from like 10 to 14, um, or 14 and up, you know. Um, so every expansion pack we want to release is going to be about giving certain subsets of our customer base the tools they need to make the best game possible for their group, right? So you're, you're into the really wacky cards. You know, we want to have a, a set out there that that makes the game the wackiest it can be. And if you have a really tight-lipped, you know, strategic game, we want to release a pack of cards that's going to help you make the game the best it can be in that direction. On top of that, um, I think we want to start moving into these sort of standalone expansions where you're getting, you know, fewer cards. It's really thematic, um, but it's very travel-friendly. You could just, like, throw it in your backpack in, like, a, a smaller box, Um but as a nice entry point to people who just want to get in and don't want to have to make decisions about like, well, what cards should I put in? It's just like curated, ready for you to go. Um, Terms of the Moon is in a lot of ways like our baby. And, you know, it was the first game that brought us any sort of attention um, whatsoever. And it's, you know, keeps our company afloat. And so we want to support it for a long time and uh, sort of really make sure that it uh, rounds out all the bases, I guess, for like what players want. Um, and just gives them a lot of options to play the game a lot of different ways. We will always support Two Rooms and a Boom because a lot of people support it. So as long as people are still playing the game and still having fun and asking for more, we'll be there. Cool. Good to hear. So, you know, let, let's just focus a little bit, a couple questions on, on just the actual, maybe some Kickstarter advice because you guys are clearly having a lot of success with it. You know, what would you tell somebody who's just getting into running a, you know, thinking about running a campaign as, you know, a, a first early strategy or, or, you know, pay-per-click ads on Facebook or, you know, any, any sort of advice on building an audience before you launch a campaign? 
Well, the biggest thing is definitely do your homework. And by listening to your show, Jeff, they've already taken the first step. They've already because right. this is it right here. <laughs> this is it right here. The first steps. You want to know what you're getting into because if someone thinks, oh, I'm going to make the me- next Monopoly and it's going to fund on Kickstarter. <laughs> right. And you just think it's magically going to happen. It is not. It is another job in of itself. In fact, that's why a lot of people stop using Kickstarter, even if they've had successful Kickstarter campaigns. It's because there's a lot of energy that you have to do continually with supporting your backers just as they've supported you. So don't think it's going to be one wine and dine, get the money and run. It's a continual relationship that has to happen. And a lot of people hate that about it. They just want you to be the customer and not to have a relationship. But get ready to have a relationship. It certainly is a two-way street. So, you know, kind of wrapping up our, our interview here, you know, I usually like to ask, uh, you know, people who are really into the board games. So, Sean, you know, if you were stuck on a desert island and you couldn't take one of your games, what game would you take to play? Uh, for me, it would either be, it would depend on how many other people are going to be stuck on the island with me. Um, it's just you and Alan. But I can say... Yeah, you and Alan. Just me and Alan? You guys oh. are stuck and you got one game if to play that's just not, Alan one I... not, not one of your own. Kamasutra. (laughs) That's a real game. That's not just him screaming out obscenities for no reason. Yeah, yeah. Bruno (laughs) Fadini of Gold Fame and Masquerade actually made a game, Kamasutra, and he pitched it to us. And Sean's really bummed that I said no because he really wanted to do it. But I was worried because I got injured while we were playing it. (laughs) It's a true story. Sorry, Sean. Go on. No, you're fine. Um, for me personally, I would love to bring Go, ancient sort of Chinese game, because uh, I feel like you could just learn and get better at it forever, forever. It's very, very simple. Um, but if I was bringing, you know, other people along with me who may or may not like that game, I would want to bring something like, you know, D&D, where we could just endlessly iterate on it uh, sort of forever and forever. Um Close second or third place would be Play-Doh 3000, uh, one of Alan and my favorite games and one of me and my girlfriend's favorite games, and just a really great two- to four-player game um, like Gin Rummy but with powers and uh, very, you know, just calm, just love to play, always down to play that game. Cool. All right, Alan, your turn. You're up. Well, if it's just Sean and myself, one thing I'd bring is... Sean's games, because <laughs> they're not mine. But in all sincerity, I really do, do love Duel, and I think that has infinite replayability. So if you're listening to this and you know micro games like Love Letter, etc., really elegant, simple games that only require a few cards, I think it has almost infinite replayability. And the bonus is, because Sean made it, we could continually work on it, or I could criticize the game, which means I'm actually criticizing him. <laughs> So that's one of the beautiful things. The other part would, I would totally agree with Plato 3000 and some role playing games and maybe even some of the other games that Sean's been working on that I haven't seen for the same reasons for Duel, just so we can work with each other. Because the truth of the matter is, it's different being a publisher and than it is from being a designer than it is from being a player. And I get the most fun probably designing games and seeing them be played. But I also love doing that process with Sean. So even if we were playing someone else's game, I know if we were stranded on an Island, we would have endless conversations about what would make this game better or why this game is amazing, et cetera, et cetera. So if we had free reign to do that and it was our own game. So if I brought Sean's games, that would really add to the fun. So so something you said uh, that you just said kind of sparked a question here. Uh, how challenging is it to, you know, to wear the multiple different hats so that you know that you're making the best product, you know, flipping from maybe game testing to, you know, artwork to game design to, to Kickstarter fulfillment. I mean, you've got all these multiple hats. How do you, you know, just kind of jump, you know, your mindset to make sure that you're, you're producing the best product? Division of labor. This is what I'm doing this podcast. I'm just coming up with one (laughs) phrase for each little answer (laughs) and then hoping Sean takes it away. Division of labor. Sean, take it away. No, Alan's absolutely right. We do have to wear a lot of hats. Um, 
And while there's a lot of overlap, like I really love designing games and Alan's got a lot of great ideas about where to take the business, um, we try to separate it to where Alan, for the most part, wears the I'm in charge of the game design hat and I try to wear the hat of like I'm in charge of logistics sort of hat. Um, knowing that sort of we both got into this because we both want to build a company and design games, um, those are the fields that we feel more the expert in, I guess you would say. Um and so there's a lot of deferring to each other's judgment. Uh, the great thing about board games, though, and as the company builds, is you do get to wear those different hats and try them on and and see how you like, you know, being an art director, being a graphic designer, being the designer, being, you know, the manager, the boss, you know, the all these different little things. Um, just takes a lot of patience to sort of let that stuff work itself out um, and also to know, like, the longer we're a company, the more both of us will get to try out as many different things as we want, right? So there's not a lot of pressure to make sure you're, like, 100% fulfilled on every single game in every single way. Um, some games, you know, you'll it'll be, like, Alan's game, and it was his idea, and he's doing the art direction for it. You know, other games, that won't be the case. Um, and so I think, yeah, for us, it's all about Division, you know, deferring to the fields that we're both sort of growing in, mm-hmm. uh, but also just sort of being patient and letting each other sort of like try out different roles and see where they take us. So something I forgot to ask about too, real quick, last one. What's the what's what's the mobile app? The 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 two rooms in a boom mobile app. Oh, that's something we don't get asked about. It's something we've been working on for quite a while. We had a fan of the game make it, and he did such a good job that we said, hey, if you want to make it official, we will support you. So it's a slow process because our programmer, Nathan, he lives in Hawaii. Isn't that right? Isn't he live in Hawaii, Sean? I think so, yeah. Yeah, he lives in Hawaii. Sure. Sounds good. Yeah, sounds good. He lives in Hawaii, <laughs> and he has a full-time job, so we send notes, and it's it's coming along. It's coming along. So the cool thing is you can play Two Rooms in a Boom completely for free if you go to our website, TuesdayNightGames.com, at any time via print or play, but you can also play Two Rooms app, and you can play for free on your phone, so everyone just logs in to the website and you have someone host and you can play and your phones become the cards. It's really cool. And we're hoping to keep on expanding that. Really cool. Well, Alan, Sean, I think we just made a top 10 podcast episode. I I feel it. I feel it in my belly. Yeah. (laughs) Boom. Jeff. (laughs) We love you. Awesome. 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 Well, guys, awesome work. It was a great conversation. I'm glad we got through our tech hurdles in the beginning. Um, you know, I'm glad we were Zencaster worked with us. So that's a good thing. And, uh, I wish you guys a lot of success and, uh, I appreciate you taking, uh, taking some time to talk to me and my listeners. Hey, Jeff, if your listeners want to keep in touch with you, where can they find you? Where, where can they find me? Yeah. Uh, they can find me anywhere on the internet. You just got to Google Jeff Fuzzy Wenzel. I think I'm on every platform <laughs> that ever comes out. So yep. <laughs> that's all you got to do or woodshed.agency. You can go to that too. How about, how about you guys? Where, where do people find you? They, you know, they're, they're listening to my podcast. Where, how about you guys? Oh, well, I'm Alan Gerding, A-L-A-N-G-E-R-Ding. And you can find me on the Twitter or on the Facebook at Alan Gerding. Or you can just check out our website, TuesdayNightGames.com, spelled with a K. Sean, do you want to put, uh, put your info uh, out there for the world? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Sean McCoy. That's S-E-A-N-M-C-C-O-Y. Cool, guys. All right. Well, thanks for your time. And uh, yeah, good talking. Thanks for having us, Jeff. This was awesome. Cool, 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 cool. That was a wild conversation. Did it not feel like... Like I was like holding on for dear life. I felt like at any moment that conversation was just going to jump out of the speaker. Alan, full of energy. Uh, Sean with the, you know, the details that I I love their teamwork, man. You can totally tell that they're having fun um, with their, with their company. Uh, They're making great games. Uh, I'm going to be checking out um, the, the, I'm going to check out some of their games here for myself. The two rooms and a boom. I'm going to pick up one of those for uh, me and my friends to play. It sounds like it's an awesome, fun game. And uh, yeah. How about that? So the song we're listening to is a song called Standing Still. Again, like I say every week, it's a song I wrote with my buddy Jake back in the day. It's featuring a singer named Lulu Dahl uh, on the lead vocals. Uh, Well, it's a duet. 
Lulu and Jake are singing on it. And um, yeah, it was an, an album called The Sugar Roses Collection um, that nobody ever heard or got, but I think it came out to be a pretty good song. So, uh, all right, enjoy it, and I'll talk to you all on Thursday. Oh, love will just make my day I understand what you will not say